A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Jason Flom, and I'm excited to share a new podcast with you called The War on Drugs. In 1971, President Nixon declared drug abuse to be public enemy number one, which was the opening salvo in what became known as America's War on Drugs. Fifty years later, with drug overdoses at an all-time high, are we any closer to victory? The War on Drugs from Lava for Good podcast, co-hosted by comedian Clayton English and Greg Glaude, the senior criminal justice fellow at Americans for Prosperity. This podcast examines five decades of policing, policy, and persecution, and asks, what is the war on drugs really about? What are the other alternatives that could bring this cruel, misguided, and fruitless war to an end? Listen to episode one of The War on Drugs right now. Then search, find, and follow The War on Drugs to listen to episode two wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode one of the War on Drugs podcast. Yeah, yeah. Kicking it off the right way. My name is Greg Glad. And I'm Clayton English. Clayton, I'm going to start this episode with a statement. What you got? The War on Drugs was never about drugs. This is Harry J. Anslinger, Commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. So the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was run by a man called Harry Anslinger. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable, dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. He's the man who invented the modern war on drugs. In fact, he's the first person to use the phrase almost 50 years before Richard Nixon. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. It's very hard for people to say, you know, what we're doing right now just works fine. Let's just carry on with what we're doing, right? I think we're good here. Leading medical researchers are coming to the conclusion that marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably 
the most dangerous drug in the United States, and we haven't begun to find out all of the ill effects. I went to places that have built most of their approach to drugs around anger, and the evidence is clear. When you respond primarily with anger, you're screwed, the problem gets massively worse. Yeah, but yeah. like rage and anger is what we do best. We're Americans. <laughs> like, come on, how are we going to get away with that? Yeah, right. We love getting pissed right. off about that. We've got a monopoly on rage and anger. That's our number one export. Hey, this is Clayton English. This is Greg Glaude. And this is The War on Drugs. All right. Welcome to the first inaugural episode of The War on Drugs podcast. I'm Greg Glaude. Yes, and I'm Clayton English. Clayton, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your background, why you're here. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm Clayton English. I'm a stand-up comedian, actor, writer. I've been doing it for a while. I talk a lot about being pulled over by the police and arrested by the police because that's just been my reality. You know, just uh, whether traveling from city to city, I've had a lot of run-ins with it, so that's always prevalent in my comedy. And uh, I kind of look to those great comedians before me who put, you know, social commentary in their stuff and felt mm -hmm. like their material had to have a little bit of a social responsibility. So that's why, that's why I'm here. And I'm here also because I feel like it's so much more I need to learn. Like, I think I know a lot of things intuitively about this thing we call the war on drugs, but I don't know how deep it actually goes. And I think that's why it's so great here working with you and learning and talking to all these great people because the knowledge I've learned is just, I mean, it, it, it could be overwhelming at sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I definitely feel that doing this job day in and day out, you're just like, Ugh, it's, it's a lot to process. It's a lot to process. It's a lot to process. But uh, I think we put it in a good way so people can understand it. Yeah. I think you're good about that. Now, you know, I went. Now you got to tell the people All something right. about you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I my name's Greg Glaude. I'm the senior fellow uh, for a organization called Americans for Prosperity. Uh, they're a part of the Stand Together Philanthropic Community which seeks to solve some of the nation's most pressing problems. I work on improving the effectiveness of the criminal justice system and protecting our communities. I work towards stopping the system uh, from incarcerating people who have not violated anyone's life, liberty, or property rights. Uh, that includes the tens of thousands of people that have been unnecessarily incarcerated due to the war on drugs. Uh, you can't incarcerate your way out of addiction, and that's one of the many reasons why you know we wanted to start this podcast in conversation with you all. Yeah, you said that like you was in a hostage situation. Ah, uh, there you yeah. good. <laughs> should, no. I bl should I blink twice? Yeah, yeah, just blink. Let me know you're good. But no, it I actually— I have to say stand together, philanthropic community four times on every podcast, so I... I'll just float them in here, yeah. <laughs> I had to say something because really it just sounded so much better than, than my thing. Yeah, no, it's— um. You know, I've, I've been working in this area for a while, and I, I learned so much going through this. You know, we're going to have our first guest, uh, Johan Hari, today, um, yeah. who wrote an amazing book called Chasing the Scream. It's something that really changed the way I thought about drug policy and addiction, really. Like, Clayton, I know, you, you know, you're, you know— little bit older than me. We kind of grew up in the same time period at the very least, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, it was all the D.A.R.E. programs. It was all this mentality that, like, you could be— the most straight-laced person that didn't touch anything, and then you had one, you know, ounce of the devil's lettuce or oh, a smoke of yeah. this, and you're you're trapped. You're a crackhead now. Yeah, it's exactly. Over. It's you're, over. You're, yeah. And you learn that that's just completely wrong, and we've just taken that at face value, and that's been able to 
essentially vilify an entire subcategory of people, which, you know, we've just essentially said that that is who this war is on. And mm-hmm. because it's a vilification of these people, we're able to do a lot of things that generally citizens wouldn't be, you know, yeah, they wouldn't tolerate exposed it. to. They wouldn't right. tolerate it. But now they're a drug person, um, and that's a totally different subsect of our population. So we can do things that, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't put up with. So Yeah, so we're going to get into it with Johan Hari and really the origins of the drug war. Where did the drug war as we know it now, where did it begin? And Johan's going to take us through that. Yeah, Clayton, you um, work you know, on, a, on a Marvel show, on Hawkeye. With superheroes, origin stories are very important. It's, and it's very, it's, it's important for the villain, too. Exactly. So, yeah. And we're going to bring some villains in here. Yeah. And also the creators of these villains that have regret from these villains. And it's, it's, a, it's a wild story and a journey, I think, that we're going to take you it's through for these 10 yeah. episodes. Um, it is epic. It is an actual epic. So I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to you all listening to this, particularly this first episode with Johan Hari. He's an amazing, amazing um, novelist and, and speaker and advocate on, you know, ending the prohibition on, on drugs. So, yeah, take a listen. We're, we're really excited, and uh, here we go. Johan, it's, it's amazing to have you uh, today. Uh, welcome to the War on Drugs. Hey, Greg. Welcome. I've been living it for too long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm welcoming you. You should be welcoming us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit of a fanboy um, on this. I, I've, I've read your book a couple times now. I work in drug policy, and it opened my mind up to so much stuff. I felt like I was always just like really focused on current policy. How do we make things better? But I never took the time to understand addiction and what it actually is. And I think you really opened up a lot of my mind. Oh, cheers, Greg. Thank you. It's, um, it was subject that was very close to my heart. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And obviously, I didn't understand why then. But as I got older, I realized we had a lot of addiction in my family. So it's been really moving that it's helped some other people with addiction problems. And it's tried to kind of open up a bit more the discussion about what addiction actually is where I realized that I had really actually misunderstood what I'd seen happening in front of me for so much of my life yeah so, yeah and so is that where a lot of like your interest drew to to write this book was just kind of you know your own personal history um, within your family to write this or is there other trigger points you're like I need to get this message out there I think like a lot of people who've got someone they love with an addiction problem when I started working on Chasing the Scream 10, 10 years ago now I was a real mixture of very intense emotions. So there was part of me that really loved the people I knew with addiction problems and wanted to help them and felt incredibly compassionate for them. There was another part of me that was really angry with them, if I'm honest, and was like, well, why don't you just stop? Why are you doing this? And I was really oscillating between these feelings and nothing I was doing was helping. And that's really why I started the research for the book. I was like, okay, what is actually happening here? What's going on? It was a kind of wild ride to realise that so many of the things that we think we know about this are wrong. Drugs are not what we think they are. Addiction is not what we think it is. The war on drugs is not what we think it is. It's a strange thing to have this subject we talk about so much and to realise we're getting so much of it wrong and that when you understand what's really happening, a whole different set of solutions begin to open up. Yeah. Something you said that I find interesting, you said that you found yourself going between the emotions of anger and feeling sympathy and compassion for the addicts. And I think that's what most people who have to deal with somebody going through addiction 
feel all the time. You know, like I know in my life, I'm like, wow, that's mm. I, I wish they could be all right. I wish they could get off of it. I wish I could help them. And then that other part is like they stole some shit from me again. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah, it's I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling. And the fact that it sets you out on this journey is hearing what you've had to say is just enlightening about how we treat people and where where things should go from here and i think i think that's so moving the way you just put that clayton and i think we've got a level with people that both those sets of feelings are legitimate right the feelings of love and compassion are legitimate the feelings of anger are legitimate but then we've got to figure out okay if we act on the compassion what happens and if we act on the anger what happens and actually obviously i went to places that have built their most of their approach to drugs and particularly addiction around anger, like the United States, right? And yeah. the evidence is clear when you respond primarily with anger, when you give in, that's a natural part of you, but if you let that dominate your response, you're screwed, the problem gets massively worse. But Absolutely. when you build policies based around love and compassion in very practical ways, and it's, it's very clear what the outcome is. I've been to the countries that did it. Countries that build their policies based on love and compassion and restoring order to this situation have huge diminishing addiction problems compared to the countries that are based on rage and anger. Yeah, but yeah. like rage and anger is what we do best. We're Americans. <laughs> like, come on, how are we going to get away with that? Yeah, right. We love getting pissed right. off about everything. So, right. yeah. Yeah. We've got a it's monopoly right. on battle. rage and anger. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's our number one export. Johan, what are we getting wrong about addiction? Not only in the United States, but in so many places around the world. We just saw statistics come out. Last year, 107,000 people died of overdose. If the whole point of the war on drugs is to eradicate the harms of drugs, we're failing miserably. And so what are we missing about addiction that is so critical and that's not carrying on in the policies that we're carrying out in the United States and abroad? Well, there's a lot of things, but the the one that most took me aback is if you had asked me when I started researching my book, Chasing the Scream, 10 years ago now, Johan, what causes heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were an idiot and I would have said, well, Greg, the clue's in the name, right? (laughs) Obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction. We've been told this story for 100 years that's become totally part of our common sense. It was certainly part of mine. But what I learned is that story is not totally wrong. Chemical hooks are definitely real. But actually, the evidence shows they're a shockingly small part of the picture. Actually, something much more important is going on. And I only really began to understand it when I went to Vancouver and interviewed an incredible man named Professor Bruce Alexander, who did an experiment in the 1970s that's really begun to transform how we think about addiction all over the world. So Professor Alexander explained to me this story we've all got in our heads, that addiction is caused primarily or entirely by exposure to the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Anyone listening, you can try these experiments at home if you're feeling a little bit sadistic. You take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks. It'll die by overdosing, right? So that's our story. You try the drug, you want more and more of it until eventually you overdose. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and he said, well, hang on a minute. You put these rats alone in an empty cage where they've got nothing to do except use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends. They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of colored balls. They can have loads of sex. Anything a rat can want in life is there in Rat Park. 
And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water. And of course they try both, they don't know what's in them. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water. They hardly ever use it. None of them use it compulsively. None of them overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they do not have the things that make life worth living for them to no compulsive use and overdose when they do have the things that make life worth living. The thing I, I really learned from this is, oh, so the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Valuable though that is to many people, the opposite of addiction is connection. Right. The core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. Once you understand that, you can see why what we do in the United States is such a disaster. The war on drugs is based on the theory. Well, what causes addiction is the drug. It's physical exposure to the drug. So A, we spend most of the money trying to physically eradicate the drug. An insane fantasy, we can't even keep drugs out of our prisons right. and we pay people to walk around the whole damn perimeter the whole time, right? right. But, right. but also it's premised on, well, with people with addiction problems, you need to punish them in order to give them an incentive to stop. But once you understand that pain is the fuel, pain is the cause, pain is the driver of addiction. You can see why that's so crazy, right? It, You're throwing more fuel to the fire. Exactly. Sometimes yeah. we say, oh, it doesn't work. Well, that's true, but that's way understating how dumb what we're doing is. It's not that it doesn't work, it's that it makes the problem worse, right? right. And everyone listening knows you have natural physical needs, obviously. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But we have been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs from people. With you just saying that too, you kind of answer something you said earlier. That's why there's drugs in jail, you know, like and, and, and they constantly take away programs that yep. would help people get readjusted to society. So, yeah, of course, the drugs are going to play a part. How else are you going to deal with those circumstances? I think you're totally right. And I, I always think, Clayton, you know, the one thing you can say in defense of the American war on drugs is we gave it a good shot. <laughs> we did it for a hundred years. We gave the old college try. We spent a yeah. trillion yeah. dollars. College, like we went to grad school <laughs> <laughs> trying United, to get this. Yeah. The United States has imprisoned more people as a proportion of its population than any human society ever, including Chairman Mao's China and Stalin's Russia. Number um, one, baby. Number one. Uh, <laughs> The United States has destroyed whole neighboring countries or nearby countries like Colombia and El Salvador. And at the end of all that, you can't even keep drugs out of your prisons, right? Yeah. So the, it, it's hard to imagine that the United, that any country could try the war on drugs more than the United States has tried it. And at the end of 100 years of doing it, where are we? We've got the worst drug deaths in the world. We've got catastrophic organized crime related violence caused yeah. by the war on drugs, you know, at least 10,000 additional murders a year, almost certainly far more. As a result of the violence caused by prohibition, we can talk about that. Like no good outcome and lots of bad outcomes, catastrophically bad outcomes. Something that you talked about a little bit, like the war on drugs has not been about drugs because if it was about drugs and stopping drugs, we would already have better results or stop what we're doing. But I want to get to a little bit of the history behind this, because I think a lot of us, particularly in America, we think about the war on drugs starting 
with Richard Nixon and kind of, you know, he declared the war on drugs. That was the initial declaration. But Harry Anslinger, I mean, he is he's on the Mount Rushmore of drug policy. And where does he fit into all this? Um, why is he on like your Mount Rushmore of, you know, the drug war? It's interesting. At the start, before I had done the research for the book, if you'd asked me, why did the war on drugs begin? I would have guessed it was for the reasons that if you stopped someone in the street today and said, why is there a war on drugs? Most people would go, well, you don't want kids to use drugs. You don't want people to become right. addicted. That right. barely comes up, that right? All, yeah. <laughs> the reason drugs are banned is because there was a fear, a hysterical racist fear, that black people and Chinese Americans and Mexican Americans were using drugs and, in inverted commas, forgetting their place and attacking white people. I mean, it really is stated that explicitly. In the Senate, one person says, the cocaine N-word sure is hard to kill. That's the, the level of the debate at the time that drugs are, are being banned. So the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was run by a man called Harry Anslinger. And Harry Anslinger is probably the most influential person who no one's ever heard of, right? Or hardly anyone's ever heard of. He's the man who invented the modern war on drugs. So. Harry Anslinger is a, a government bureaucrat who takes over the Department of Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition is ending. So the United States had a war on alcohol and alcohol won, right? So his department's about to be shut down. And he effectively invents the modern drug war to give his department a renewed rationale. Now, he sincerely believed what he was saying. It wasn't a kind of false invention. So this occurs and Harry's looking for a way to kind of gin up support, funding, strength for this organization that doesn't have a lot of purpose at this point after prohibition ends. But marijuana was this foreign drug that was kind of attached to different races like Black Americans, Mexican Americans. And he was kind of like, all right, that's where I'm going for. And if you can talk about that and how that was used to show that like marijuana was the next bad thing and we need to be expanded and enforce this with zero tolerance and crack down. So cannabis was legal, right? And yeah. right. after Anslinger takes over the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, you know, he wants his department to be a big department and there's not much you can, you know, heroin and cocaine were very, very minor tastes in the United States at that time. Very few people use them. Of course, cannabis was more popular. It was still much smaller than it was, you know, before the war on drugs begins. But it was, right. but it was, it was, you know, they were more popular. And really, with the help of Hearst newspapers, which was kind of like the Fox News of the day, he promotes a series of very extreme scare stories about cannabis. So, in in Florida, in Tampa, a 21 year old boy named Victor Lycarta uh, hacked his family to death with an axe. Uh, all of his family. And Anslinger latches onto the idea, ah, oh, this is what cannabis does to people. If you smoke cannabis, you'll hack people to death with an axe. I'm, it sounds like I'm comically exaggerating. This is literally what they said. Um, so this becomes this huge story. Years later, someone goes back and studies the psychiatric notes. Victor Lycarta didn't even smoke cannabis, right? His family had been warned that he was very seriously mentally ill for a long time. Obviously, we know almost everyone listening will have smoked cannabis at some point, and it's very unlikely any of them had their family to death with an axe. Yeah, they might have gotten a little fatter. Exactly. Like, I just got hungry. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. That right. I mean, it's not to say there can be some harmful effects associated with cannabis, to be sure. And it's I'm going to tell you firsthand, it's hard to swing an axe if you're smoking good <laughs> weed. I don't care what you're chopping. But yeah. <laughs> very good point. Very good point. So, yeah, and feeds and creates this kind of hysterical, literally a hysteria about drugs. And it's not a coincidence he chose the Latino young man and it's not right. a coincidence he wants it to be referred to as marijuana, a, a Spanish word, not 
cannabis um, so he actively promotes that so with every drug he tried to associate it with a different ethnic group so he said that heroin had been brought in by the Chinese by the 50s he says it's actively been put in by the communist Chinese government to weaken the United States for an mm. invasion this is how fucking crazy this guy was um, with, with, with cocaine he said it was something that, that African Americans were smuggling in and, and with cannabis he said it was something that's being brought in by Mexicans so it's all part of this kind of racist hysteria. And whenever there was evidence, and of course, this is all bullshit, white people use drugs just as much as anyone else. And whenever, Damn right we do. And whenever, Number one. And whenever that <laughs> <Yeah>. was, <laughs> but whenever that was revealed, he would always present it as, ah, yes, they've been given it by these uh, other racial groups to prepare them for what he described as the ultimate nightmare, which was... Um, race mixing and particularly mixed race children which he described as the ultimate tragedy so you can see how i mean you it's it's hard to understate how racist harry anslinger was he was so racist that his own senator in the 1920s said he should have to resign for being too racist that's quite hard yeah. right like that was the, yeah. it was not a progressive time right so he was really a very extreme racist and yeah, we've lost the racists you know, you've really gone too far. Right. Yeah. Right. In the 20s? <laughs> exactly. In the 20s. <laughs> You're like, hey, buddy, take it easy. All right. Hey. Yeah. I think what you just said makes so much sense, especially for, for me being a black person here in America. Like, you just proven what I've always known without knowing, that the whole war on drugs comes from racism. It comes from the mind of a racist. And that's how it's set upon communities. Like, I think about people always talk about how black people always blame the man. The man's keeping you down. Like, this is the man. <laughs> like, we actually had, like, we found him. We never knew him. who it was. <laughs> it's him. It's Harry. We'll be right back with the War on Drugs. The War on Drugs podcast is sponsored by Stand Together. Stand Together is a philanthropic community that partners with America's boldest changemakers to tackle the root causes of our country's biggest problems. Christina Dent is one of many entrepreneurs partnering with Stand Together to end the war on drugs, the root cause of so many problems in communities across the country. As a foster mom, she came into contact with the war on drugs when she saw how it was ripping apart the family she worked with. She witnessed how kids were affected and how mothers wanted something better for their families but didn't have the tools to get there themselves. Christina Dent started a nonprofit called End It For Good because she knew there was a better solution to help these families. She's working to end the war on drugs in Mississippi and build consensus around the state to help families struggling with substance abuse problems find a different path forward than the one they've been given. Stand Together has many more stories like this one as it partners with thousands of changemakers who are driving solutions in education, healthcare, poverty, and the criminal justice system. To learn more about Stand Together, their partners, or how you can partner with Stand Together, go to standtogether.org. I always think about Harry's story beginning with this very different moment. In 1939, in a hotel in Midtown Manhattan, Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer, walked onto a stage and she sang the song Strange Fruit which was an incredibly right. radical song. Well, it remains a radical song, but was incredibly radical then. Right. I'm sure most people listening know it, but people who don't know, it, it's a song about the idea that in the South, there's a strange fruit that hangs from the trees. And as the song goes on, you realise these are the bodies of black men who've been 
uh, murdered by white mobs. And not long after that, Billy received a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the FBM, and they effectively told her, stop singing this song. And to Harry Anslinger, Billie Holiday is everything he hates, right? She's a black woman standing up to white supremacy in a very brave and bold way. And Billie Holiday had a heroin addiction. So when Billie Holiday gets this warning, it's telling her, you stop singing this song, in effect, she says, basically, fuck you. I'm an American citizen. I'll sing what I damn well please. And that's the point at which Harry Anslinger resolves to destroy her. So... um, he hated employing black agents, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to follow Billie Holiday everywhere. It'd be kind of obvious. So they had this agent called Jimmy Fletcher who was told, follow Billie Holiday everywhere, gather information about her drug use. Uh, in fact, gather information about all the jazz musicians' drug use. We're going we're gonna to bust them all. So Jimmy Fletcher spent 18 months following Billie everywhere, getting to know her undercover. So they busted her. She was put in prison for 18 months. She didn't sing a word in prison. But when she got out, that was when they did the cruelest thing. At that time, to perform in most places in the country where alcohol was served, you needed something called a cabaret performer's license. Anslinger makes sure Billie Holiday is not given a cabaret performer's license. Her friend Yolanda Bavan said to me, what is the cruelest thing you can do? is to take away the thing someone loves. Imagine taking away singing from Billie Holiday. Right. This, yeah. by the way, is what we do all over the country today, right? When people have an addiction problem, we don't help them reconnect. We put barriers between we deprive them. deprive them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, make we allow it visitation sometimes, we, yeah. but you can't touch your kid or, yeah. yeah. Exactly. We, li- we limit your connections. Exactly. As the, much as possible. The, the most counterproductive thing we could do. Um, in that situation, entirely predictably, Billie Holiday relapsed. And one day in Midtown, only a few blocks from where she'd first sung Strange Fruit, she collapsed. And she was taken to a hospital and the first hospital wouldn't take her because she had an addiction problem. The second hospital took her. And on the way in, Billy said to her best friend, Maylie Dufty, they're going to kill me in there. Don't let them, they're going to kill me. She believed that Anslinger's men weren't finished with her and she wasn't wrong. So in hospital, she was diagnosed with advanced liver cancer. Anslinger's men came and they arrested her on her hospital bed, knowing her diagnosis. They they handcuffed her to the bed. In hospital, obviously, they didn't give her any heroin. And she went into withdrawal, which can be quite dangerous if you're as sick as she was with cancer. So Maylie, her friend, managed to insist the doctors gave her methadone. And then she began to recover a bit. And 10 days later, she was cut off from the methadone. And the next day, she died. And uh, Harry Anslinger gloated when she died. He wrote, uh, there'll be no more good morning heartache for her. And I think a lot about this story because um, the fight between Harry Anslinger and Billie Holiday isn't over, right? All over the world, every day, people listen to Billie Holiday and it makes them stronger and it makes them better. And every day all over the world, we listen to Harry Anslinger, with a few exceptions, we listen to Harry Anslinger and we follow the war on drugs that he created and it makes people weaker and it breaks people more. And... At some point, we have to side with Billy. But the other thing that that story really helped me to think about, it goes right back to where we where we started. It helps me to think about the people I love who've got addiction problems. You know, in our culture, we tell one heroic story about people with addiction problems, which is sometimes they recover from their addiction. And that is indeed a heroic story. And everyone listening who's in that position should be really proud of themselves. But... 
Billie Holiday never stopped having an addiction problem. She was addicted till the day she died. She was still a hero, right? Staggering courage and bravery. But you just think of how many people like Billie Holiday have there been since then? You know, we're talking about something that happened in the 1950s, right? Mm -hmm. How many people since then have died needlessly because of this catastrophic war? And how many people have just had shit lives when they could have been helped and turned their lives around, right? At some point, we have to stop following Harry Anslinger. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, I'm optimistic that if we fight, we can tear this thing down and we can replace it with policies that actually work. And in some ways, you know, it goes right back to the very first thing you said, Greg. 100,000 people died of overdoses. That is an unbearable tragedy and we'll never get those people who had unique lives back. But the one good thing that can come from that is all the fire alarms are going off, right? It's very hard for people to say, you know, what we're doing right now just works fine. Let's just carry on with what we're doing, right? right? I think we're good here, right? No one's saying that. They're not saying that in the most conservative parts of the country. Uh, They're not saying that in the most liberal parts of the country. No one says that, right? People can see what we've done hasn't worked. They're ready to be persuaded of the alternatives and it is a job to persuade them and we've got to do it through stories and evidence and love. Uh, but I absolutely believe we can we can win this one. Johan, this was incredible. I urge everyone to read Chasing the Scream. I think it's going to open your eyes. There's so many little tidbits and yes. notes in there and like these aha moments all throughout it where you're just like, I'd never thought about it that way or I, it was completely shocking or... You know, it's just amazing. It'll change your whole perspective on this. So thank you so much, um, you know, for your time. uh, And, you know, hopefully we get to talk to you again soon. Johan, thank you. Thank you both. I really enjoyed coming on the show. Thanks, Clayton. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, this was awesome. We got a couple bills to pay, but we'll be right back. Money, money, money. (laughs) A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. 
And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Wow. Um, thanks again to Johan uh, for, for coming on and giving us so much of his time. That was, you know, they say don't meet your heroes. Um, but no, nah, he was he was yeah. amazing. I, he didn't yeah. disappoint. No, he did not. He's like the most likable guy in the world. He's got that British accent rolling. Yeah, man. At, like a more likable James Corden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And he made yeah, me I sound funny. British I lo- yeah, he's one of those guys where like anything you say that has even like a bit of humor, like he's just dying laughing. You're like, oh, yeah. maybe I could get this old uh, stand-up thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get out there. Yeah. Let me know. It was just Johan and then just a bunch of other people <laughs> I get to pay. Yeah, maybe we can get a, a good show going here. But yeah, I mean, you can kind of see why we picked that as the first interview, no, first it, episode. It, it needed to be. Yeah. And it just confirmed everything that I ever thought. It is racist and most of this stuff is not based on any type of facts. Yeah. Our, our producer, Michael, pulled a bunch of these articles, some things that we touched on that were coming out then, and, and Ann Slinger's fingers are all over it. And then, you know, William Randolph Hearst, who owned a bunch of newspapers and um, was able to just kind of pump this out. And so when you controlled the media, you know, you kind of controlled everything. This is from Reader's Digest back in 1938, Marijuana Assassin of Youth. Uh, by Harry Hanslinger and Courtney Riley Cooper. And some of these quotes, is just crazy. Just like anecdotes of things that were going on that we know that could not be true. Um, Chicago, two marijuana smoking boys murder policeman. Used as justification exactly. for why. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this. Not different from today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was always drugs and it was just used to well, who is the enemy right now? How can we pin drugs on them? And how are they going to damage the white community? And it happened over and over again. It was marijuana. It was heroin. It's cocaine. It's it's everything yeah, else. And just looking at these, you could just see that criminalizing race, you know, ethnicity, and then you know, poverty goes hand in hand with that. No, it's just drugs were the mechanism by which you were able to keep people down as second class citizens. Whoever was the enemy of the day, you see it over and over again. Nixon, during you know, he didn't like he didn't like the Black Panthers. He didn't like oh. hippies. And now they're a bunch of LSD heroin toting right. folks that are going to, you know, take over the country. And, you know, they're not pushing back because they think 
drugs are bad and this is what's going to help. It allows for control. If you legalize marijuana, now you can't use like, I smell marijuana. Now I get to search your yeah. car. That goes yeah. away, right? Yeah. You know that. I mean, and you know that move. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the main go-to. How did you smell marijuana? I was going the opposite direction with both windows up. Right. But okay. Cool. Yeah, I love the police officers that the, that are their own drug dog. You sniffed it out yourself. Like yeah. they didn't even give you a dog. You just okay, McGruff. <laughs> Good job, man. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I'm I'm hoping, you know, that this is the jump off of more episodes to come. And we like we said, we want to show that this does affect you. Even if you don't go through the criminal justice system, even if you don't use drugs, you yeah. you break your ankle, you or a loved one gets cancer. Are you able to get an opiate prescription? You know, we're going to get into a lot of that. And so it's going to touch on everything. And we really just want to show that historical aspect of it, where it comes from and how this has been utilized. It's not about drugs. It's about power control. And so thanks for listening to the first one. And we'll hopefully be along for the ride for the next few. Yeah. 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 Come back. Make sure you follow the War on Drugs podcast so you don't miss any new episodes or any of our quick fix bonus content. And we'll be back next week with another episode of War on Drugs. Until then, thank you for listening. Executive producers for War on Drugs are Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis. Senior producer is Michael Epstein. Editing by Nick Massetti and Michael Epstein. Associate producer and mix and mastering by Nick Massetti. Additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Anna McEntee. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Lava for Good. You can follow Greg on Twitter at Greg Glaude and Clayton on Instagram at Clayton English. The War on Drugs is a production of Lava for Good podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. I'm your host, Clayton English. And I'm Greg Glaude. And thanks for listening to the War on Drugs podcast. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.